Welcome to Podcastle in the Sky. For this episode of our podcast, we are comparing two different works that examine the Red Riding Hood story. The first one is Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, set in an alternate history fascist Japan about a stormtrooper becoming involved with a possible female terrorist from 1999. And we are also discussing The Company of Wolves, a magical realist anthology movie based on a short story collection by Angela Carter called The Bloody Chamber. And unfortunately today, our compatriot Lily isn't able to make it. I am, of course, Jesse. I'm Amber. I'm Tom. And I'm William. Okay, I really wanted to start off by digging into just some general compare and contrast with the Red Riding Hood stories. As you know, it's a really, really old folktale. I did a little bit of research just on the folktale itself, and I had known that this tale was pretty old in Western Europe. The earliest accounts seem to go back to around 900 or so, although there are probably even older accounts even than that. And the original, if you guys don't know, it's got, you know, all of the characters are already there except for the huntsman. You've got Red, you've got Granny, you've got her going into the woods, meeting the wolf. The real difference between the kinder version that we know today and the really old version is that Granny is chopped up and bled, and the wolf has Red eat her grandmother, drink the grandma's blood, and then tells her to take off her clothes and get into bed with him. And from what I have learned in the past from just like analysis and uh, from what I've seen online, this usually is seen as kind of like a warning, a sexual warning in particular to young women to be careful with whom you get with because you never know whether or not you are bringing a man or a monster into bed with you. And that I thought, not just with the sexual stuff, uh, because Company of Wolves like really gets into that, but I thought both adaptations that we watched do kind of really explore the monster aspect of the wolf. You know, like what makes a man into a monster? What what constitutes a monster, you know? And I thought that would be an interesting angle to kind of look at. Like what was monstrous about these, the wolves that we experienced in these adaptations? Right. I'd like to point out that both stories, they end the same way with Red Riding Hood being metaphorically consumed by the wolf. In Company of Wolves, she's actually seduced and becomes a werewolf. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Jinro, the uh, the stormtrooper kills that girl he was involved with. Ooh, ooh, yeah, actually, and, and I am sorry to to go back to the original. In the original versions, yeah, Red doesn't survive at all. She is consumed. She is eaten alive. So both versions do indeed like keep that line of thought that if you mess with wolves, you will get consumed. So, Yeah, but Jinro is Red Riding Hood told from the story from the wolf's perspective, whereas the Company of Wolves was the traditional Red Riding Hood one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I mean, the thing with Jinro in particular is it's sort of he's, you know, getting back to the what makes it part. In the Company of Wolves, it's not quite, but there's the more... 
Company of Wolves has actually multiple versions of the story within the same movie, so, but it's more in line with sexuality aspect, sort of seduction aspect, whereas with Jinro, sort of what makes this man a wolf is actually out of his control, more or less. It's this system in which he inhabits, sort of inevitably makes him a wolf, and to not be a wolf is really even worse on some level if you at least recognize that's the case. You know, there's there's many wolves above him who are imposing worse things. He's just sort of acting not by instinct, but it's it's almost like instinct in the sense that he's being told what to do and, and doing it. And it's also implied that he was like there was that one version of the story, right, where they're telling about the little girl being tricked into eating her mother. And it's implied that he was that little girl who was also tricked into becoming a wolf. That he is also the victim in this. Yeah, I think that's indicated in Jinro by the way the story changes. Like one detail that is added in the screenplay of the film that is unique to the film's retelling of the story when it tells the, the actual narrative is the idea that Red Riding Hood had to tear herself out of this suit of metal which is obviously connected to the heavy armor that members of the Kerberos Corps and mobile police wear in general. So it's it's identifying him in that aspect of the story with Red Riding Hood. Just yeah. like in, in Company of Wolves, there's a lot of times where the girl becomes the wolf. Here, the wolf is also, in this sense, the girl. Yeah, both movies play a lot with role reversal and that sort of... There's moments, it's, there's a cyclical element to it where at different parts of the story, each, different characters are operating in the sort of perpetrator or target role. And so, mm-hmm. at the start of the movie, and in terms of Jinro, you know, our character is the wolf, and then he's sort of at the mercy of this thing that's slightly incomprehensible to him with the girl with the explosive satchel at the start. And then throughout the sort of middle section of the movie, he is sort of this victim figure of many wolves, so to speak, in terms of the people above him who are using him and the girl he's interested in to their own ends. And similar, as as uh, William was saying, with, with Company of Wolves, you get, you know, at the start, she is very much, uh, our main character is very much the traditional Red Riding Hood figure who's being the target there, but that whole role, particularly at the very end of the movie when she confronts the sort of nobleman wolf character, turns it around on him, that changes. So. Yeah, the I thought it was really interesting in Jinro how, like you said, he's thrown into the victim element many times. Like, I mean, uh, looking back at the original tale when Red is coerced into consuming the flesh of her grandmother, like, essentially, that is what our main character is forced to do by his wolves, you know, he is forced to consume. He's forced to come to terms with what he is. I mean, you have these wonderful moments of clear signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, where he has serious series of flashbacks and he has horrible dreams and he gets back into these moments where his experiences have just like consumed him as well, you know, like beyond just his obvious uh, the obvious reference to him in the uh, rewritten version of red riding hood that we hear in the movie you know it's like it's almost as if red riding hood in that tale even even the red 
Red Riding Hoods of the girls who are used by the terrorist group. It's like their course is destined for them, just like with Red Riding Hood. Like as soon as she enters the hut, there's no going back. You know, she's going to be eaten by the wolf. And I find that really interesting. Like, you know, there's there's no escape. Yeah, and uh, I guess just to summarize for people who haven't seen Jinro or saw it a long time ago, basically the, the basic plot structure here, uh, like Jesse was saying, it's an alternate 1950s kind of fascistic version of Japan, post-World War II, and our main character, Fuse, is a member of this special police unit, and they're going after a left-wing militant terrorist organization during sort of kind of like the Empo protests that actually happened in real life, a lot of social turmoil, and there's this one girl who's a courier for the right-wing organization, or left-wing organization, which is called The Sect in the movie, and he corners her in a sewer, and there's a bomb in her bag, and she pulls it and explodes right in front of him, and he has to sort of assess why, as this professional soldier, he didn't shoot her, and why there's hesitation, and then eventually he gets involved with a woman who says... She was her sister. I mean, that sets off sort of this whole event. But so, getting back to what you were saying, yeah, there's almost a, um, there's a certain horror movie aspect to Jinro, and not in the sense that it's, you know, scary or something, but there's, there's a Twilight Zone element almost where in a more conventional movie, our main character, Fuse, sort of recognizing his own humanity would be the road to some sort of, you know, change in, his own life, or he would try and use that awakening to alter society in some way, to rectify wrongs. But in this movie, it's him awakening to his own sense of humanity and the fact that he has humanity at all is actually a horrific experience because he basically wakes up only to recognize how complicit he is in perpetuation of this fascist society and also his powerlessness against it, and especially at the, obviously, at the end of the movie, where he has to kill this woman uh, that he's developed a relationship with because she's actually a honeypot. And so for him and his superior officer at the end of the movie is saying, would you rather be completely isolated or would you rather remain a wolf and sort of at least have some sense of community and purpose because the alternative for him is recognizing his own humanity and just seeing how completely a part of the system he is, and that's sort of horrifying in the sense that he is completely powerless, and he also is a, a perpetrator of some pretty horrible stuff. And for him, it would be, in in a fascist society in general, this movie is sort of saying is that it's actually personal level, on a human level, it's almost better to not recognize your own humanity. It's healthier for you, because to recognize the truth will really destroy you because of how awful it is. Well, I felt that he was pretty much destroyed at the end. You know, his humanity was gone. Like, he chooses to shoot the girl rather than not, you know. He was given the choice. Of course, off in the distance, there was somebody with a gun to his head that he didn't know about. But he still made the choice and did not die, you know. But it's destroyed him as a person. Exactly. He can never go back to the old world where at least he had a a feeling of righteousness to his cause or loyalty to his unit. Mm -hmm. What has happened to him is never going back. And so he can try to sort of repress his humanity in the way that he used to, but ultimately it's futile. He's recognized it. And what he recognized in himself 
was that he is a wolf. And again, it just destroys him as a person at the end. It's, um, when the film was being made, the director, uh, Hiroki Okiura, asked Mamoru Oshii to not base it on the manga series, not the story. Because it's based on a universe that he created, and he has made a number of works in, and including a, two live-action films. But Okiura, who had worked with him in the past as the character designer in Ghost in the Shell, had been part of his kind of circle, didn't want too much of that particular element. And he also asked it to be a romance story, so that's something to consider, that this is Oshii's idea of, of a romantic version of this setting. Oh, but, um, yeah, although it, it's not directly based on the manga story, the first volume of the manga has a very similar story about a man called Inui, who, like Fuse, sorry, Inui, I'm not going to pronounce this right anyway, but anyway, like Fuse, he's, he's really shaken by an experience of encountering someone who shoots at him but appears to be innocent. But in that case, he's repeatedly referred to as a lone wolf. And the idea is that he was only inserted into this unit as a kind of political compromise with the local police and that he doesn't have what it takes. So later, at the end of this same arc, he again encounters someone claiming to be a civilian, but is actually part of this militant left-wing group. And he again doesn't immediately shoot, and this time it kills him. So having a degree of indecision, having a degree of passion while serving in this kind of fascist position as a policeman is incredibly violent. And and I'm going to pivot here a little about Oshi himself, is that he was actually involved in the student activism of the 1960s and 70s, which is inspires the story of this film and reoccurs very frequently in his work. For example, when he was asked to do a novel based on Blood, The Last Vampire, he made it entirely about student activism. Uh, you know, Vampires, student activism, it's the same thing. Let him do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> uh, so um, I really, Jinro, to a large extent, is about this period kind of pushed to extremes. Because although we've been beating around it a bit, and the film never explicitly says it, this is a world where Japan lost World War II to Nazi Germany. It was Nazi Germany which occupied the country, which instituted the constitution, and which provided the armor for the Kerberos Panzer Corps. In fact, in another one of these works, that armor is revealed to have been very similar to the armor that the Germans won the Eastern Front in, where they won the Battle of Stalingrad and so on. So this is kind of really pulled back into the film into really subtle elements, like the uniforms of um, the more senior people in the police are based on the uniforms of the S.A., and the prevalence of German culture, like Red Riding Hood. He reads it in the German, you might notice. And later in the film, he takes out his gun from a hollowed-out copy of Tristan und Isolde, a German story which was famously adapted into an opera by Richard Wagner, which is known for its aria Liebestod, or Love Death, which is literally what goes down here. We have a story where love ends in tragedy, love ends in death. I mean, not in the way of that particular story, because there they both die, and they still love each other, but there's a similar kind of weight to that reference. Okay, I caught that they were kind of deep into German culture, and like the guns were the things that I, I noticed the most, because their handguns were all, um, I, I forget what it's called. Yeah, but... he had a Mauser. Yeah, Mausers, yeah, thank you. But I totally... I totally missed that deep cut right there with the the gun that he was 
the, the, where he was pulling off out the gun, Will. <laughs> to be honest, I didn't notice it either. It was just pointed out, in, and I really should mention this because I'm drawing on it a fair bit. The Stray Dog of Anime, the films of Mamoru Oshii by Brian Rue. Excellent book. He's a friend of the podcast. Or anyway, he follows us on Twitter, so that's good enough okay. for me. But it's a really good book. It is a thorough look at the films of Oshii. Well, Jinro is not strictly an Oshii film. He did write this screenplay, and it is set in the universe he created, and is very similar to two main anime films he made in the 1990s, Ghost in the Shell and Pat Lover 2. Cool. I'm kind of glad the movie did not get into this whole thing about Germany conquering Japan or something, because if they had, that would have like overshadowed everything. Jinro, actually, it's not really... It's not as focused on the plot as you would think. I mean, like, what are the uh, the terrorists fighting for? Like, something about anti-war, anti-Liebensraum? Like, it's really hard to find out just from the movie itself. Like, the movie itself, it's more about the characters than the actual plot, which is also connects it more to Company of Wolves. It's less about the plot, too, which is... Because it's like more magical realist stuff happens in and out. Weird crap happens. But it's what the characters are doing that's the important part. Yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, in preparation for this podcast, I went back and tried to watch as many of the things in the broader universe called the Kerbero saga that were available. And basically none of them dwelt to any degree on the backstory with Nazi Germany. I mean, they may have done that in the radio plays or the books or the other things that I haven't been able to access, but the three principal films and issues of the manga that I read and the other additional films that are not really related, I'll get into that in a bit, none of them bring up the Nazis at all. I think in the context of Jinro, it's just in a way of kind of literalizing and exaggerating the politics of the 1960s. I mean, if you are a member of the Japanese New Left, one of these student groups, you do see the police as fascists. You would refer to them as fascists. You would throw fascists in their face. It's practically a cliche, even in the West, to refer to police cracking down on protests as fascists. So you just take that and you literally make them fascists by having them, you know, with the Nazi German connection. I I think in, in narrative terms, that's really what's going on here, at least in related to Jinro. Yeah, I agree with Jesse that, I mean, it was clearly more about the characters than the the plot. I mean, the universes that they existed in, in both, really, more just fed what the, how the characters reacted to the world around them than any sort of, like, saving the world or, any, or you know, affecting, affecting the world around you or whatever. Yeah, I mean, to the extent that the plot in general, because, you know, there is this plot structure and there's double crosses and people are working for different people. And yeah, it does sort of take a backseat to the characters like Jesse was saying. To the extent that it matters, I think it's this whole Kerberos saga is sort of, it's picking apart sort of the kind of mythology, I guess, of, of fascist society a little bit. It, it's taking... You know, in uh, The Red Spectacles, for example, you know, it's a very sort of bizarre, sexualized story. It sort of takes the sheen of the regimented, disciplined sheen of fascism and turns into this sort of psychosexual nightmare. It's a very interesting movie. But, and it's a similar thing here where... Oh no, Jesse's out. Oh, sorry. Continue, Tom. Yeah, I'm recording. It's a similar thing here, I think, because what you see, it's sort of picking apart the optics of authoritarian unity, because, you know, in both positive and negative depictions of an authoritarian state, what you sort of see is 
you know, on the positive side, it'll be like, you know, we're all one in the project, we're all two. It's a unified society. And in a negative depiction, it'll be sort of like, you know, everyone in the society is an automaton and they're all marching to the same step and it's sort of horrible, non-individualistic nightmare. Both the positive and negative depiction are pretty much the same, which is sort of interesting. Whereas in an actual authoritarian society, it tends to be much more messy than that. And Junro, I think, does a really nice job of, you know, all the the sect isn't really, they're important, but they're not really the bad guys in Jinro, in the sense that, not that I mean they're great people or anything, but they're not really the primary antagonist. The primary antagonist is other police, it's other sections of the coercive apparatus. And so I think it sort of does a nice idea of, of picking apart this image of a unified authoritarian state that is dedicated to one purpose, when really you get these parallel power structures, particularly when it comes to the security apparatus, and that they're all sort of wrangling with each other to their own ends towards the interests that really mean nothing to the, even the people on the lower chains of those very organizations, much less the society at large. There's no benefit there, and I think the movie does a nice job of showing that. We're trying to get Jesse back. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Like, I, I was listening, but like at the same time, uh, I, I was just trying to get him back in. Uh, really quick. That was really good stuff, Tom. Okay, so well, we were just talking about how it's a more realistic, a more nuanced depiction of a totalitarian society in fiction than we see normally. And I would say that's also true in particular of depictions of like post-Nazi societies. I, just one thing I, I would say is, is a little, a uh, great little detail is you don't see the swastika anywhere. In stuff like Man in the High Castle or SSGB, which is a new show on the BBC, post-Nazi societies are shown having swastikas basically on everything just to really – he's gone – well, just to really lay the idea that this is a, a Nazi society. But right. the Nazis were a little more proprietary with how they used the swastika. You didn't see the swastika like on all the buildings in uh, Slovakia for example, which was one of their client states. Right. So if, if Japan, as a client state of Nazi Germany, would have its own insignia and have its own ideological groups, which would be influenced by the mother country but wouldn't take all its images. Or to put it another way, you know, it's not like America, when it, it took over Japan, Japan redesigned its flags to all look like the American flag. So it's a depiction of a post-Nazi victory society, which visually feels right. I mean, it has stuff like the cars, I think, are kind of German, aren't they? I don't actually uh, know cars. Sure. Well, yeah, they, they drive Volkswagens. The yeah, yeah, there yeah. we go. So yeah. they drive Volkswagen. So they're, they're little things. Yeah. They're observational things. It's, it's a real, I think, the most realistic in, in iconography terms of what that kind of society would look like, except for, of course, the, the giant robot suits. The, that part, obviously, is, is a bit right. more fantastical, but everything else. Yeah, I mean, even beyond the iconography, there's just the style of the world in general. It's really, it doesn't deviate very much at all from, you know, late 50s, early to mid 60s Japan. It's very grounded in that way. There's not, again, you know, along with, if you're trying to do, you know, a fascist or totalitarian society in fiction, if you can't use the swastika, you use you know, these grandiose buildings, lots, yeah. of, lots of right angles and things like this, but really... This, Usually some other kind of insignia that replaces the Nazi insignia. Right. Whereas right. this, you know, it just looks like they're normal bureaucratic buildings, people live in normal houses, it's it's a society that 
many people actually live in, in the real world. You know, it's, yeah. there's, there's a lot of authoritarian societies out there, and it's not this sort of comical, you know, futuristic Nazi state. It's, it's just things work in a different way. And yeah, this movie has a really nice living quality to it that communicates the horrific aspects of a fascist society on a human level rather than the sort of more shallow iconographic level, which I think is valuable now more than ever. Um, so. um, there he is. Uh, yeah. Yay, yay. Are you back, Jesse? Glasses. Yes, apparently. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, um, one thing that like really impressed me about The Wolf Brigade was, well, just how subtle it was. Compared to like a lot, to be perfectly frank, almost every single anime that we have watched thus far has been rather bombastic in one way or another, right? And this movie was just so, I mean, the long shots, the meditations on small moments, it was very, very subtle. And I felt like, yeah, the, uh, the way that they even discussed the government structure that did somewhat affect Fuse's life, you know, because he was a counter-terrorist and he was working this plot, you know. It was just really well done in how it portrayed what normal life would be under this state. Like, people still lived in typical Japanese-style apartments. People still walked to the movies. Still, you know what I mean? There were these protests, of course, but normal life is still normal life, you know, even when you're living in a fascist state. And I don't know. And And like you said, it's really... When I watch this movie, I, I have to say, given the times that we live in, it was a really good, what, what could happen, you know, outlook. It's like, life isn't going to turn into the Hunger Games when the fascists, if the fascists take over. Life is still going to feel like normal life, except, right. you know, and, Given just like the political situation that, say, the Americans are in right now or that Europe is sort of experiencing right now, it's like good to remember that sometimes this stuff happens in degrees, you know, like you kind of float down to a different governmental structure that you didn't think would ever happen. But because normal life is normal life, you just kind of get used to it. You get used to seeing armed policemen everywhere, you know, you get used to riots happening and it's important to not get used to it <laughs> to recognize it for what it is and right. I, I don't know it's really interesting i really enjoyed this movie on many many levels beyond just like the fairy tale retelling or the horror aspect but also in the way that it showed life as life you know yeah. in a different yeah it's not the empire of star wars or something yeah exactly exactly Something that's a really big interest for Oshi in his films is urban landscapes. You know, to the extent even, like, co-produced documentary films, which are literally just shots of Tokyo without words. Huh. He, he's he's obsessed. That. Yeah, yeah, so would I. I, I just read about them. Um, they sound good. They're on DVDs that they're available. Tokyo Vine was the name of one of them. And the other one was Tokyo something else. Hang on, I'll get it. Uh, Tokyo Visions, that was it. Tokyo Vine, Tokyo Visions. I think. Anyway, so he's obsessed with cities, like Ghost in the Shell with its Hong Kong and the disassociated Tokyo of Pat Labor 2, the ruined city of Angel's Egg. Even in this film, which he doesn't direct, the idea recurs in the screenplay and in the influence of the style. Like the characters discuss that a building was there once and now it isn't there anymore. 
and they don't even remember what it was. Cities are constantly reinventing themselves in little ways. And one thing that Brian Rue argues in his book is that this is probably one of the main reasons that this film was made as an animated film, because it's depicting a Tokyo that no longer exists. I mean, it's it's a fictionalized Tokyo, but it's really grounded in Tokyo of the 1960s. And Tokyo of the late 1990s is a different city. and It's changed quite a bit. Um, quick question. Isn't real estate in Tokyo seen as kind of ephemeral? Like, you know, just in the Western world, we put so much value into older buildings and stuff like that. And from what I've read of Japan, it's like it doesn't really matter if it's 300, 400 years old. If it's uh, if somebody wants to destroy it and build a bunch of apartments on top of it, nobody really is like trying to save it for historical value or whatever. You know, they were preserve historical stuff but i know just like your average residential or commercial buildings they yeah they like knock them down and build new ones up again like pretty mm. regularly by comparatively speaking to here for example so yeah 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 uh, no yeah i'm not i'm not talking like you know like a historical temple or something i'm talking more like you know even here we'll look at like a 150 year old house and be like ooh, it's old it's got like character and stuff like that but yeah. o- over there it's like they're like, oh, this, it's like 150 years old. Why the fuck would I want to re- renovate this bullshit? Dock it down. We'll, we'll build something modern and right. that I don't have to fix all the time. So. Well, I mean, I'm from neither location. In Dublin, you know, there's a lot of buildings here that go back to the Victorian and Georgian periods. And they get knocked down or people protest about it or whatever. It was actually like a big political movement recently to keep a building, but it's not because people like it. It's from the 1960s, conveniently enough. It was called Apollo House. They wanted to keep it as a place for the homeless because people want to knock it down to uh, build office blocks because we really need more goddamn office blocks. (laughs) Not to get very political here on on it, but I guess my point is obviously, you know, reshaping cities like this is is always innately political in in many different ways. Yeah, and I mean, obviously in the Japanese case, you know, Tokyo, after World War II, there wasn't a lot left, so so it's sort of, yeah, it's gone through multiple cycles of sort of rebuilding at this point. Oh, and by the way, if I'm completely wrong about Tokyo, or Japanese Tokyo people in particular, like uh, population of Tokyo people in general, their thoughts towards housing, like if anybody is listening and like knows better than me, please tell me to shut up. <laughs> bunch of morons yeah. <laughs> on the opposite side we're talking right. about how how grounded uh Jinro is and, um... oh yeah i mean like yeah. just to say one thing before jesse takes us away company of wolves what i love about it is how extremely 80s it is everything is a sound stage everything is some elaborate kind of set that would just be cgi if they did yeah. it today yeah, and then also puppets. the actual yeah the puppets and the sets all of that would be cgi but it's like legend or something like that really scott film all these kind yes. of fake greenery everywhere god i loved it so much i loved all those fakey ass sets and that puppet scene the changing puppet scene with the face peeling and shit that legit freaked like i was like looking away oh, yeah. from the screen and go like oh no 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 <laughs> it was beautiful yeah that scene was pretty great i still think the uh, werewolf transformation from uh werewolf in london or or paris yeah yeah that one no no the american werewolf in london i think still think that was the best werewolf transformation but this one's definitely top five top five oh, man I, I frankly i thought it was one of the better gross out practical effects that i have seen you know like i was just blown away and also i totally would love to see numbers on how many children of the british in the <laughs> 80s like watch this movie Scarred thinking 
Yeah, and we're scarred for life, and, like, even now they're like, oh, fuck, no, oh, no. Yeah. No, don't. <laughs> well, I like, there's a really cool okay. bit after you've done, oh, sorry, I'll let you go ahead in one second, but, and then, like, the, the snout popped out of the puppet all of a sudden, that was really cool, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, no, I was just going to mention that Company of Wolves, it was only made for $2 million, which is, uh, in today's money, is $5 million, which is still not a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's like the budget of two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which was produced only a couple of years later, so that's probably equivalent. Quick question, was was this a theatrical release, or was it a television release? Because it looked like something like, say, HBO would have produced in the 80s, and I wasn't sure. Almost positive it was theatrical. It was theatrically released, but very limited. I'm not too surprised. Also, okay, Angela Lansbury... I think it was only a few cities. Angela Lansbury was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I just checked, and it it premiered at the Toronto Film Festival. International Film Festival, yeah. And then, you know... Oh, oh my God. So uh, then I obviously released the United Kingdoms, and then when it came to the United States, it came from our good friends at Canon Films. Uh, <laughs> this, this was like, Canon was dying at this point. Or actually, no, that was not. Yeah. It would be a couple years uh, later. No, it would be many years Oh, this later. is like 84, 85. I, think, I don't I know. I was thinking this was 90s. Like, no, yeah, no, 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 no. This, is, like this, is, this is peak, this peak, is peak Canon years. Peak yeah. <laughs> God, again, I... W- I there's no way this thing didn't like end up on some late night HBO showings and didn't freak the fuck out of some kids. I just feel like this is one of those movies that like, you know, because it's at the very beginning, it's got kind of a labyrinth feel, you know, because of the going into the dream and the like how different elements of the girl's room become part of the dream. And then all of a sudden you get really clear-cut sexual references and blood and gore and just oh my god (laughs) it was kind of amazing i I really enjoyed this movie (laughs) yeah i never actually heard of it before we decided to watch it here and i was like i'm surprised this isn't better known because it is like it's extremely 80s fantasy and Uh it's really great in that respect like the sets are just so you know, inventive, and they just nail the the stylized elements of it so well. Every single little bit of the environment is sort of, you know, malformed in some way. And yeah, it's really, and it does have these sort of surprising elements. It's sort of, there's an M and flow to it, because it is sort of, you know, there's stories within stories in this movie. Maybe I would have preferred maybe the last, I don't know, 45 minutes to get crunched a little bit. But even then, it's always engaging visually and uh, yeah, I'm also surprised I'd never heard of it because you know it is an early film by a local boy Neil Jordan. Local in the sense he's an Irish director. Uh, he's better known for the Crying Game, Interview with a Vampire, Breakfast on Pluto, and so on. There's still a, a little kind of like I said that local boyism. Like when he did a vampire movie called Byzantium a couple of years ago, it was first premiered to my knowledge right here in Dublin in the Irish Film Institute. I didn't go see it. But people were definitely talking about it. Like, Neil Jordan is, is a director. I've seen a couple of his key films. And there's ones I haven't seen of, but I've heard about for years and years, like The Butcher Boy. But this is one I've never heard anyone mention, including when I was in college doing TV and film and taking class which focused on a Neil Jordan film. So mm-hmm. it's kind of weird how little it's talked about, considering it's quite good. And I'd also heard of, just to make this even more weirder, of course, I, I heard of Angela Carter because she's... um. 
one of the better-known English-language magical realist authors. I'd never heard of this particular collection of stories, but I'd heard of her. She's quite popular, particularly people who like talking about genre fiction, which is explicitly feminist, because as you could deduce from this film, she definitely does that. Okay, I'm surprised that I'm the only one who knew about this movie. <laughs> really? I think I first saw it when I was 12, which coincidentally was the same age of the uh, lead actress when she did this movie. So you would be the kid that was scarred by this that we were speculating about. Like, Ooh. were you scarred by this or what? Uh, you know what? Like, my older brother, he... Ah, crud. Man down. Man down. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try calling him again. Maybe it'll... I really, I hope that, yeah, because I really want to get his perspective as a kid watching it, because yeah. the whole time I was watching it, I really was going like, God, if I had seen this at 11 or 12, I would be both weirdly aroused and also terrified, and I, <laughs> I want to know. Hello? Jesse? Okay, so, like I was saying, my um my older brother was a film student. He was always bringing home all kinds of weird crap, so... Yeah, that's pretty much the same thing. Uh, coincidentally, I was the same age when I saw The Crying Game. Oh, wow. <laughs> Dear Lord. That's, uh, a, that's, a, that's a twofer, for sure. I mean, I remember when I was like, yeah, probably 12 to 15, I discovered we had the Sundance channel. Saw a lot of weird shit because of that, man. <laughs> like, like, I had a pretty normal, you know, talk at all. I was, I was like watching Metropolis. And Daz Boat. That was about oh, yeah, as dark as totally, it got. Yeah, that's what does. That's what does. As I mean, okay, yeah. Yeah. admittedly, watching a 1920s German silent film is a little unusual, but, um, oh. you know, my parents, you know, would moderate stuff. They wouldn't let me take out, like, darker films. Like, I just realized, I was looking up movies the other day, and I was reading about a Sam Peckinpah film, the film he made about Nazis fighting in the Eastern Front, Cross of Iron. And I saw a poster, and it just instantly set me back to the 1990s to a VHS place. Where I'd like always grab a World War II movie, and I I knew I wanted to get that one, but it was you know it was R-rated. My parents were like, no, no, I'm not getting a Sam Peckinpah film as an eight-year-old. Probably but, um, since someone gets his dick yeah. bitten off in that movie, so. Oh, <laughs> dear Lord, dear Lord. <laughs> I, I know that. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, okay. So you know what this seeing this movie flashback to me was my parents were also very strict about what kind of movies we watched. But somehow, and I don't know how the fuck this happened, but I was watching HBO at around 12 or 13 and Hellraiser came on. And I felt like <laughs> that same kind of level of psychosexual weirdness and blood as, you know, blood and pain as well as sex being mooched together. Like, I think that was kind of a similar experience of, I don't know why I like this, but I am also terrified. But I like this for some reason, but I am also terrified. It's uh, pretty much the same as, you know, quality level diabolic lovers. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. No, thankfully, yeah. well, I, many leagues no. better. Well, my mother was opposed to any censorship, so I could always watch whatever grown-up movie she was watching. But let me tell you, they're actually pretty boring when you're a kid. It's like all talking, no explosions, oh, yeah, no cartoons. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, oh, I, I know that feeling. I mean, I don't know if I've told this story before, but um, once I rented Gallipoli because I wanted to see uh, the Battle of Gallipoli, but that's the very end of the movie. Most of it is about these Australians, you know, hanging out in Egypt or something. And I basically kept fast forwarding through it. Like, at what point are we going to get to the goddamn battle? And it's an anonymous gun placement. 
don't get to see any Turkish soldiers. I was so disappointed. So <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, to hell and back. That was the kind of World War II movie I adored as a child. Because, you know, that is all these major battles, and you follow through the battles, you get to see a good idea of the battles, and that those are very important things to a child for some no doubt disturbing reason. Yep. Guns and Averone, what's all that? Oh, that, that, that's a great one. Yeah. Man down. Rest in peace. Just to bring up some of the... Okay, so with this movie and the various stories of uh, sex and beastliness, I just loved this. I love the whole stories within stories within stories aspect of this, of Company of Wolves, because it was cool to see how a child sort of tries to process sexuality again you know what i mean because we were all kids at one point but it's hard to really roll back to when it was all kind of weird and puberty was weird and sex was kind of weird and you had a lot of questions but you didn't know if you were allowed to ask them and actually this movie kind of deals with it pretty um directly and i mean there's one scene where the girl she she sees her parents you know having sex And the movie does not in any way, shape, or form consider this a weird or disgusting thing or something that would fuck her up. It's just like, oh, that's sex. And she asks her mother the next day, does it hurt? Does he hurt you? And the mother then explains to some degree that sex isn't all beastliness. And like the grandmother does as well, but she, I guess having other not so great experiences also tells the girl that there are downsides. Like, it can be fun in bed, but the guy could be a monster or children could happen. I love that whole scene where it's like, and they lived happily ever after. And she's like, well, no. And yeah, then they yeah. have this whole scene with her like peeling potatoes and telling her two-year-old child, shut up. You know, shut yeah, up. They, they did like too good of a job with that scene. I was just like, oh my God, all these kids stop crying. <laughs> Please just stop, stop crying. I want to cry. And then showing that her second husband did have a propensity to, like, smack her around if she said something he didn't like. Although, of course, it was about her first husband being... Being a werewolf. Yeah, but not just being a werewolf. She says kind of in awe after her horrific thing that happened. To his beheaded... His his decapitated head sitting in in, in a thing of milk. Floating Uh, in... (laughs) Whole movie, everybody. (laughs) He He looks just like... He did the day we were married. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so, and then, and then he went on to be a respectable, uh, respectable actor and all sorts of things. Yeah. But, uh, but I don't know. Like, I just love how it dealt with sex so directly, and yeah. also this girl's sexual awakening to some extent, and also that on one level it's okay to reject the doofy guy who's seen as a good choice. And go with the wolf, you know, because she straight up goes wolf at the end. She decides to roll out her own way, and her mother allows her to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting, too, because, like, the easiest way to reverse the story is obviously, like, if we're taking the sexual aspect of the story. The easiest way to reverse it is the original story says sexy dudes are scary, and you should stay away from them, and it's bad. That's sort of the grandma of this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. And, like, she's not a bad character. She's just sort of a, a dork. There's, she has blind spots, but, like, she's not the villain or something. And then the easiest way to reverse that is to be like, sexy dudes are great. Go do sexy things. Don't let the man put your sexy times down. And the movie, it doesn't just do that, which I thought was interesting. 
no, so, it, it sort of acknowledges the dangerous, nasty elements of it, but also yeah. that it can be awesome and sexy and fun. And, and so, yeah, I thought that was an interesting approach to it where, cause I was almost expecting, you know, when I went into watching it, because it's like reversal of a fairy tale. Usually it's just, you go with the most obvious reversal, but it's not just like a straight, like empowerment fantasy on a shallow level. It's a little more interesting than that in terms of how it can be fulfilling, but it also can be damaging and yeah, sort of needs to it, sort that out on your own. Yes, exactly. Like, you know, there's many different aspects that can happen with your coming of age. It's not all one path. And I liked that it showed different paths. And of course, all of the side stories were also different paths that sexuality can take, like your blossoming can take. You know, you've got your girl who is wandering and lost and hurt, but ultimately treated kindly in the end before she goes home and you that's the she-wolf and you've got the woman who was wronged by her man who comes and turns actually that's was my favorite one where she comes and turns the wedding party into wolves and then the uh staff all like bow to her before like digging into yeah, the feast start drink, <laughs> drinking all the wine themselves yeah there's a fun, yeah, there's exactly. a fun class element to that story uh yes absolutely but like she has her revenge because when she was wronged and the grandmother's story of finding some modicum of happiness after tragedy but it's not all fun and games and the mother's directness and her sexuality and you know i also like the uh scene of the devil and the Rolls Royce giving the young man some stuff so that he could grow chest hair. <laughs> yeah. Of course, I loved that uh, Tired Stamp was the devil. I was just like, of course he is. Of course he is. That also reminds me of something I really liked about the film is, and it's an interesting contrast to Jinro, is it's continual period confusion or timelessness like a lot of it is set in this kind of cod medieval setting where we usually project fairy tales but then it adds in something that isn't present day it's the past but it's much more recent past like a royals royce or the kind of 18th century dining and there's phones and of course the very start of the film is set in the present day before it, it regresses into this fantasy world of timelessness. So while Jin Ro is rooted very specifically in the period of time and tries to accurately recreate it, time is liminal and vague and the setting is whatever it feels like at a given moment in Company of Wolves. Well, I will say that for the most part, from the costuming of both the peasantry and the little side effects of the gentry, it does look like it was set in the 1700s, the uh, main fantasy aspect of it. And I thought that was a good setting for it, too, because that was an era where sexuality, I mean, like, to be honest, throughout history, sex has been ever-changing and stuff like that. But in our modern day, we see that era as a particularly sexual time. You know, it was coming out of a bunch of repressive movements and especially the Georgians, you know, after the uh, revolution went south in England and they came back with a vengeance and they just really kind of overdid it for about a century. Uh, <laughs> where the upper class, at least, I mean, were very much into this romantic sexuality and the many lovers and the uh, indulgence of uh, greed and everything was freaking guilt, <laughs> you know. Like so, so I thought that it was kind of a good choice of time period to kind of explore some of this in, with too. There's something nice about when the wolf comes up and he's like this lordling boy or boy, you know, man with his clothes being so ornate 
and kind of giving this this air of lavishness, you know. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess in, in terms of when you look at really old art that accompanied a lot of these fairy tales, it is sort of it tends to you know, it's the environmental aesthetic always takes on a medieval quality, but the clothing mm-hmm. always tends to stay in the era in which it was produced. You know, especially, yeah. especially like early nineteenth Late 18th century, it, it remains grounded around there a lot. So it sort of reflects a lot of the, the most probably classic slash prominent sort of artistic representations of all the stories that are at work here. Oh yeah, that's true. The Grimm's Grimm's were like uh, late early 19th, I think. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Well, I mean, there's like two things I want to do. I mean, one thing I want to address a little about the Kerberos saga that'll relate to the the uh, Red Riding stuff is its relationship to the fast food grifters or uh, oh god, Tachi, or Tachi Guishi Retsuden. I just want to bring this up because Wikipedia kind of implies that it's in the same universe, which is a little confusing because is like the world where Nazi Germany is grimly taken over also connected somehow to like Urusei Yatsura with its happy aliens and weird fantasies. Oh, okay. Um, All right. I thought you were going Hitchcock on us again, so. <laughs> no, 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 no. But obviously, I also have, I also had that plan. But um, <laughs> Sorry. first, I just, I just want to get this out of the way because in researching the Kerberos saga, I found some people had not even watched this. I mean, it's, there are no real English subtitles for the Techi Guishi Retsuden film because it was never released in any sense here. But there are fan subtitles, but they're very bad. They feel like they're auto-translated or something. If a real person translates them, they really need to do better work. No offense, whoever that is. It's actually not set in the Jinro universe, but it's a lo- ongoing work of Oshis, so he sometimes connects them. So he came up with the idea when he was still doing Yurisei Yatsura, so he did an episode about a concept which he calls the professional fast food grifters. It's closely connected to his own obsession with and love of fast food places which sell noodles, basically. This kind of conventional, traditional Japanese form of fast food, which is reflected even in like titles of movies, like Angel's Egg. It's the kind of thing you can get there. That's where that, that movie title comes from. So he came up with the idea in Yurisei Yatsura, and then he would explore it in manga and also in this film and two other films, which I couldn't see, two short films because no subtitles exist for them at all. And occasionally it crosses over with the universe of the Kerberos saga, most notably in Red Spectacles, where a couple of the characters appear, like the Lady in Red or Foxy Ojin, who is his first version of the Red Riding Hood idea. That's what I'm getting here. This kind of red woman who has this kind of mythology about herself that goes backwards and forwards in, in time. And Jin Ro, as it is a prequel to these events, because it's set in the 60s and the later films are set in the 90s, these red riding hoods in that film are kind of precursor to this character. So it's just a set of characters which are sometimes in the Kerberos universe and are sometimes somewhere else, which is also like what he did in what I've read about the Kerberos manga. He did a manga where Detective Matsui from Pat Labor showed up. But of course, that's an unrelated universe. And he also did one which crossed over our good friend, Duke Togo. Oh, <laughs> yeah. God. So, I'll go 13. Panzer Cups, no problem. <laughs> Slapping with his dick, it's all over. If people are thinking, I want to dig in more into the Jinro universe, do, do I have to go hunting for this thing? The answer is no. Watch Red Spectacles, because I think that's actually pretty good, although it's nothing like Jinro. And maybe Stray Dog, but that's the weakest of the three central works. So it's like, eh, you know, basically, it's it's not important. It's interesting, 
but it's, it has absolutely no relationship to Jinro. It just has a relationship to these characters who also appeared in Jinro uh, in, in Red Spectacles specifically. But basically, but not likes, a, like fucking around with properties. This is extremely insider Oshi fandom shit, basically. I mean, like, the Tachigushi Ritsuden movie has, like, clips of, oh, and, and this is a manga thing. and like <laughs> So, of our, you know, tens and tens of listeners, maybe one person is going to be like, thank you, Will. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and obviously, well, we talked a bit about Nazis and World War Two. <laughs> So I'm pretty sure I've mentioned Notorious before, so I'm going to avoid that. I mentioned Saboteur instead. <laughs> yeah, that's a Hitchcock film, and it has, like, you know, darkness and noir and spies. And Okay, it was the same movie. <laughs> I like that this time it was like, well, you know, Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta use what you can get. So, yeah, all, right. Get <laughs> all right, folks, would we recommend these pictures? Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say yes. I would recommend both. General, from what I've read, it's made actually quite a few top 500 lists of anime in general. So it looks like they're kind of pushing it as somewhat of a classic. I do think that some people are going to be a bit bored by it because it is a thoughtful pensive. You know what? I'm going to just say this. If you like Drive and the many times people look at each other and then, like, look off, and then there's, like, a moment of just ruminating on the moment, you're going to like Jinro, because <laughs> it has a, a lot of this similar feel of just really absorbing the moment before moving on. And the story is good, characters are good, all stuff that was mentioned before. Uh, Company of Wolves, I thought, was fantastic, and I would recommend to anybody who's into 80s fantasy flicks. And unfortunately, it's a little bit difficult to find unless you just straight up buy the DVD, right? It's totally worth finding, especially if you're into, uh, what's the director's name again? Neil Jordan. Neil Jordan. If you have ever watched any of his stuff and want to see something that I think is probably a pretty early thing that he did, go for it. And seriously, just Google the Company of Wolves transformation scene, because I think after seeing that practical effect, you will probably be into watching the rest. It's got the same kind of feel throughout. So, yeah. William? Okay, well, I came at Jinro in a little different direction. I was mostly thinking of it in terms of related to the Cabero stuff. It's easily the best of everything I was able to get to watch. And it's also the most accessible. Not just in the sense of being available, although it is the most available. It's got a nice, coherent, straightforward plot that doesn't go off into random, weird digressions. So, for example, Amber was talking about how it's occasionally a little pensive. That's much more curtailed to something like Stray Dog, where most of the movie is basically waiting for the end scene to happen. So the characters just kind of sit around and don't say a lot and dick around in China. So, but not to compare it to that stuff anymore. I think it's, like I alluded to earlier, part of what I would argue to be a kind of informal trilogy of Mamoru Oshii-related films from the 1990s. Pat Labber 2, Ghost in the Shell, and this. And they're informal in the sense that they have no direct connection. They're all set in different universes, different properties. They have similar themes, and they're also similar in the sense that they're excellent. Pat Labber 2, the first Ghost in the Shell film, and Jinro are three of the best anime films produced in the 90s, in my opinion, and thus, consequently, I would recommend all of them very heartily. As for Company of Wolves, I'd never heard of it before again, but it was really good. If you enjoy 80s fantasy with the big sets and the hair and the practical effects, and you want something that's delirious and bizarre and just melding all these stories together in a way that barely seems coherent, but always has your attention, 
absolutely succeeds at doing that. I think these are both recommends. I agree with everything that's been stated, and he stated it very well. So there you go. <laughs> uh, hello, I'm back. Okay, so Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, it's a lot better than I remember. I only saw it once, uh, like 10 years ago, more than that. And it's a lot more subtle than you would expect a story about stormtroopers fighting terrorists. And there was actually a lot of subtle things that I did not catch before. And I wholeheartedly recommend it as well. And I feel the exact same way about Company of Wolves. I really like this movie. It's dark. It's primordial. It, it's very dreamlike. And, I mean, it's a lot of different stories. But all these stories are examining the same thing uh, about the budding female sexuality. But it's examining it in a way that's from the inside, from how this person is feeling it. And of course, I do love how it uh, examines that story, that uh, awakening sexuality, in relation to this whole Red Riding Hood story. That is a great twist, making it a werewolf story as well. So yes, I do love both movies, and not just because it was my idea to cover them. All right. So next time on Podcastle in the Sky, we will be looking at two examples of somewhat dubious quality fantasy works. First, Garzi's Wing, the uh, notorious anime OVA, and also the 1982 fantasy film The Sword and the Sorcerer. All right, the show. So we've got a few different places you can find us. You can go to our blog podcastle in the sky at wordpress.com we do have more content than just the podcasts up there a few articles and we are talking about adding even more articles i made promises that i have yet to keep for instance about articles and a nice little glossary i think for anybody who's confused by some of our terms you can also reach us at twitter at flying podcastle i know that will has a few fan vids up that he's created and the guys and lily do a lot more twittering than I do. I pop in with my own account sometimes, but that's about it. If you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes. And if you could rate us, that would be swell. I know that it's frowned upon to say such things, but you know, we can't get out to beautiful, wonderful listeners without your help. And I'm also working on getting us on more platforms than where we are right now. You can find us on Stitcher. I'm probably going to put us up on SoundCloud soon, and I'm Googling around to other venues. So anyway, yeah. <laughs>